Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 46 through 50, the Word of God says, And thine elder sister is Samaria, she and her daughters that dwell at thy left hand, and thy younger sister that dwelleth at thy right hand is Sodom and her daughters. Yet hast thou not walked after their ways, nor done after their abominations, but as if that were a very little thing, thou wast corrupted more than they in all thy ways. As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, she nor her daughters, as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. And let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to open your word and look at this fascinating and instructive and and terrifying portion of Scripture taking us all the way back many thousands of years ago to two cities and one nation that are examples for us today. And I pray that you give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to us today. You give me the exact words to say, nothing more, nothing less, and that you would honor yourself in the hearts of each one. Lord, we're going to say some things that may be Uh, difficult for some, or perhaps things that they have not heard in a long time. But I pray today that you would draw everyone to yourself and show them your love and care for them through this message. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Uh, From time to time, I am required by the Lord to preach messages that I would prefer not to preach on any given day. Uh, You've got to understand that I'm a servant of the Lord. I don't go to some book and pick out what I'm going to say. But through prayer and seeking the Lord uh, and His guidance, He leads me to certain passages of Scripture. And uh, I believe God places on my heart what He has for our church and those that come to our church on any given Sunday. Now, sometimes I get to preach messages that I love, and sometimes I get to preach messages that I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't want to talk about that today. Can we do that another day? But no, this is what God has for us. And so I encourage each one of you, what I'm going to say today, 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, would have been obvious to most people. Like, well, sure, of course. Uh, But because of the change in our culture, uh, some of what I'm going to say, perhaps some of you have never heard or some of you might absolutely disagree with. But I want to encourage you, those here and those watching online, I want to encourage you that I'm going to show you what the Word of God says. And I don't want you to think of this as, well, this is what that guy thinks or this is what Pastor Chapman thinks. 
I'm going to do my very best to take you to the Word of God and show you the black and white of God's Word about what God says. So if you're here, you can have a Bible. Look on people in front of you. There's a Bible in the pew. If you're online, I encourage you to get your Bibles at home. Because today we're going to talk about a subject that affects each one of us individually and our nation as a whole. Most Americans are confused and appalled about how fast our nation is changing. Whether you're for the change or against the change, you have to admit that it is happening more rapidly than anybody would have imagined. Uh, The things, uh, COVID certainly changed some things in the way that was handled. Culture has had a battle uh, fighting for the heart of our nation for quite a while. It seems like about 50% of the nation stands on one side and about 50% of the nation stands on the other. Most Americans on either side are fairly mainstream, but there are extremes on the far end of either side really pulling both of those sides apart and creating a polarization in America that America has not seen in recent history. Uh, And it's a little bit fearful whenever people start talking about the polarization becoming on a scale as it was back in the the 1800s when the Civil War happened. I mean, that's not good for any of us. Our nation is changing morally very drastically. Our nation is changing politically crazy fast. Culturally, our nation is is changing uh, so quickly. And most people are wondering, why is this happening? How is this happening? And what can we do to preserve the best parts of our nation without losing it altogether. And I encourage you that the problem is not political. It's a spiritual problem. There's no politician that's going to save you. America has spiritual issues. This means the answer to the unrest will not be found in the White House, but in the church house. You are in the right place to figure out what's going on, why is this happening, not just to understand it, but to understand our role in it. Furthermore, you might say, well, preacher, why is, why is this applicable to me here today? I've got my own problems. I've, I'm trying to pay the bills. I've got personal issues. I've got some health issues. I've got some unrest in my heart and my mind. I mean, I've, I've tried to find my place in the world. The world's squeezing me, it feels like, and I'm in great distress, why, why is this important to me? And the answer is because national upheaval is a byproduct of personal battles. When we find personal victory over sin and suffering, that will help our nation. And we find personal victory over sin and suffering in the same place our nation will find victory in her sin and suffering. The Bible is very clear. God is the answer. Satan is our enemy. Our flesh will betray us if given the chance. Christ is the Savior that will save all of us from ourselves and a terrible world full of sin. Victory 
is available to all who will trust and obey the Lord. Isn't that good news? I've done, a, I've done a fair amount of counseling in my 19 years here and in my almost 30 years of ministry. I was talking to the guys yesterday. Next year in August will be my 30th anniversary that I was called to preach. And I feel very old all of a sudden. I feel like I need a hip replacement or something. Uh, go ahead and schedule me. Uh, <laughs> but I've been blessed to be able to help a lot of people in a lot of different situations. And the good news is that I can tell you with absolute confidence that no matter what you are facing today, no matter what emotional, physical, spiritual, personal problem you are facing today, God is the answer. Not just a part of the answer, He is the answer. And He tells us, how to come through Christ and get our personal sins forgiven. He tells us how to structure our lives in such a way for the maximum blessing and peace and meaning. He tells nations how to structure themselves in such a way as to have maximum blessing. And mark it down, dear friend, your closeness to God determines your personal feelings of peace and meaning in this world. And a nation's closeness to God and obedience to Him determines national blessings. You know, we often talk of the third world, third world countries. And Americans forget that America is a very young nation. Just over 200 years old. As nations go, that's very young. And I want to remind you that a lot of the third world nations from the Middle East to Africa to, to all through Asia, uh, all of that area that God began humanity in that cradle across the world. Thank you. Siri's listening to me again. Uh, Apple transcribes my sermons so they can use them against me later. And uh, I'm going to say some things today that they'll probably use against me later. Yeah, so let's just say I won't be running for office anytime soon. <clears throat> Most of the third world countries have civilizations that are thousands of years older than us. So we see them as behind us when in truth the exact opposite is true. These nations are thousands of years older than us. They're further down the road. And many of them had the truth. They had the gospel. And they turned their back on God. And when you look at nations that are suffering in extreme ways, it's often because they have walked away from the God of heaven and earth, not because they've never known Him. And I would be happy to sit down and talk with anyone about that because I know that's like a mind-blowing, is that, is that true? Is that possible? I'd love to sit down with an atlas and some history books and walk you through this. And as soon as you see that, it's eye-opening. So watch this. They're not behind us. If America's not careful, we are becoming them. America has been uniquely blessed as a nation. And that means Americans have had freedoms that much of the world has not known. 
And it saddens me to hear, yes, America has her problems for sure. But people aren't breaking the law to get into America because we're such a terrible place. They're breaking the law to get into America because we have freedoms here that we often don't appreciate because we've had them so long, we take them for granted. And nowadays, many people are pushing this idea that America is a terrible country and it's an awful place. And I often encourage people, well, where would you want to go to live then? Well, I want to go here or here. We begin talking about what's going on in their countries and they're like, oh, I, yeah, I didn't think about that. America has her problems, but she has been uniquely blessed because America was founded as a Christian nation with the God of the Bible. And some of you don't know that and you've never heard that, but once again, I'd love to take you to some history books that haven't been doctored and show you the progression. The pilgrims didn't come here to rape and pillage. They came here to try to get away from the the systems of control so they could worship God in the ways they saw fit. And they weren't perfect either. There's a reason why we're not a pilgrim church, and I'm not a pilgrim. They had their problems. But I'm glad that I am a child of God who looks at the Scripture. So we cannot separate ourselves. The, The citizens of a country are blessed or cursed by the health of the nation in which they reside. And we need to understand that our nation is on the precipice and really teetering many of the problems you see in America. I believe, and I believe I can show you this historically and scripturally, I believe they are God removing His hand of blessing and protection off of America as America walks away from God and says, we don't need you, we don't believe you, we don't want you. Now, most Americans don't feel that way, but the political class and the leaders of our nation certainly do. If you were to take the nightly news broadcast for the last three years and pull out the highlights and not tell anybody where they were from and tuck them in the Old Testament, anybody reading would say, wow, that's the judgment of God. Droughts, flood, fires, all of these things. Water shortages, food shortages, financial uh, tightness, political unrest, wars and rumors of wars. But now we have all these fancy excuses to blame that on and we're missing the point. So we come to this passage of Scripture that we read today. And let me explain why this is important for us to know and why it matters to us and what we can do about this. In our text in Ezekiel chapter 48, we see the prophet Ezekiel talking and giving a, a prophecy from God to these Jews. Now you've got to understand that Ezekiel was an Israelite prophet to the Jews exiled in Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Jerusalem in 606 B.C. Uh, Jeremiah, many years before, had predicted that the Jews would experience 70 years of exile in Babylon due to persistent sin and obstinance. God kept telling them, you're my people, but you're serving other gods. You're walking away from me. If you don't straighten up, I'm going to have to punish you. I'm I'm going to have to to, uh, remove my protection and blessing Uh, And so you understand, 
uh, where your bread's buttered, so to speak, so you understand who the one is that's taking care of you. It's not all these false gods. It's not your own personal wit and wisdom and ability. It is the, the hand of God. And so Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 25, 12, and it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. And so uh, Jeremiah said many years before, all right, you're going to have to go 70 years into this heathen nation called Babylon. The Babylon, the Babylonian Empire came in under Nebuchadnezzar. The northern tribes had been destroyed already by the Assyrian Empire uh, over a hundred years before. God gave the the southern tribes of uh, uh, there in in uh, Judah a uh, hundred more years plus to turn things around. And they finally had gotten so bad that God said, "I've got to I've got to judge you now too. You you just won't." You won't listen. You won't, you won't turn to me. And so the Babylonian Empire comes in and ransacks the nation. The, uh, Daniel is part of that, one of those carryings away. When you read the book of Daniel, young Daniel was carried away back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar came in and basically ransacked the, the nation, took the best back to Babylon to try to uh, assimilate them into their society so Babylon could be wiser and more prosperous. He left the remnant of the people. Jeremiah the prophet stayed in, in a broken Jerusalem and Judah to prophesy to the people that were there in all the destruction. Ezekiel was a prophet called out of those who were taken back to Babylon. Now the Jews in Babylon had it much better after a while than the Jews in, uh, left back in Judah. The Babylonian Empire was very prosperous during the exile. Most Jews assimilated into that society. Most of them were living comfortable lives. They had forgotten the God of of their fathers. They weren't living by the Old Testament law anymore. They had just assimilated into that culture. And God sends Jeremiah to his people in exile and reminds them, Hey, I'm still here and I still want to bless you. And if you turn back to me, I will send you back into the land of promise, which eventually he did after 70 years. God uh, supernaturally caused a, a king to release anybody that wanted to go back to, to Judah or Israel. They could just leave. And a matter of fact, he helped pay their bills and paid their travel expenses so they could go back and rebuild the nation. And that's exactly what happened. By the way, that reminds us there's always hope. No matter how bad things get, no matter how difficult your life is, no matter how tragic your situation, there is always hope. As long as God's alive and He's eternal, and as long as you're breathing, if you turn to Him in faith, He can change you. He can change your situation. Miraculously so. Our God can make a way when there is no way. You say, I don't see how that's going to happen. This is, just, this is just the way it is. Well, the God who made everything can make a way for you. I've seen Him do it in my life and countless others. God's good. In the midst of this prophecy, though, we see here, God comes to Ezekiel with a devastating message for the Jews here in Babylonian captivity. It's a scathing estimation of where they were spiritually. And we find here, if you look back at our text, 
in verse 46, the Bible says, And thine elder sister is Samaria, and she is she and her daughters that dwell at thy left hand, and thy younger sister that dwelleth at thy right hand is Sodom and her daughters. Now, Samaria and Sodom are mentioned. These are two of the most infinite, infamous cities mentioned in the Bible. These cities were known for places of rebellion and wickedness. And God comes to them and said, your sisters, Samaria and Sodom. What does that mean? You've got an awful lot in common with two of the worst cities that have ever existed on the face of the planet. And imagine the Jews, just whoa, that's a scathing rebuke. He goes on to say in verse 47, Yet hast thou not walked after their ways, nor done after their abominations, but as if that were a very little thing, thou hast corrupted, thou wast corrupted more than they in all thy ways. So God said, your sins aren't exactly alike, but you are more corrupt today. My people, the Jews in Babylonian captivity, are more corrupt than Samaria and Sodom ever were. And the people, this was like a gut punch. It was a wake-up call. See, Israel's problem was not the political nature of, of Israel or Babylon. It was, a, it was their spiritual condition. And our issues today, our biggest issues are our spiritual condition. What's your spiritual condition? What's your relationship with God? Are you born again? Do you know what that means? Are you saved? Have you had your sins forgiven? Are you close to God? Do you know God is your father and friend? Or is he some far off entity? You're not even sure he's there. Uh, Do you know he's there, but you've been walking contrary to his ways? Our spiritual condition is the most important thing in our lives. Not how much money we have in the bank not what color we are or where we're from or what demographic we are. The most important thing about us is our spiritual condition. In order to understand these two places and, and what that meant to these folks, we've got to understand a little bit about Samaria and Sodom. Samaria was established as the capital of the northern ten tribes by King Omri in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 24. We won't take time to look at it. Samaria became synonymous with sin, idolatry, and rebellion against Jehovah. If you look at the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament, you find that after King Solomon, the nation was split, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. The northern tribes were called collectively Israel at this time. The two uh, southern tribes were called Judah Judah had more good kings, and they were somewhat more faithful to God, but they still had a lot of problems. The northern ten tribes became apostate almost immediately. The very first king, after the split, said, I want to protect my own power, so instead of turning people to God, he made two molten calves, put them in two towns called Dan and Bethel, and said, these are your gods. And basically, the very first king, after the split of these nations, started Israel on the path of apostasy where they they no longer served God with all their heart. And king after king after king descended the nation further and further and further into wickedness 
until God destroyed the nation with the Assyrian Empire in about 722 B.C. No religious Jew would want to be associated with the spiritual condition of Samaria. So to, be say, to, to say to someone, you're like your sister Samaria, that was like a slap across the face spiritually. It was like a punch in the gut. But a city that was even more infamous than Samaria was the city Sodom. And notice God said in our text, you're like your sister Samaria, your elder sister Samaria, and your younger sister Sodom. You have a lot in common with these two cities. As wicked as Samaria was, Sodom was worse. Historically speaking, Sodom was one of the major cities in the Dead Sea Valley at the time of Abraham. Sodom was so wicked that God in His perfect omniscience and His perfect sense of justice decided the only course of action was to burn the city of Sodom off the face of the earth. Matter of fact, we're still not quite sure where Sodom was. It disappeared. They found ruins later that are just shocking to see whenever you, they think this is where Sodom was, and when you look at the ruins of, of what's left, it's in complete agreement with what the Bible had to say. But hold your place here and look at Genesis chapter 13. Remember, I want to show you the Word of God. Genesis chapter 13. This is not me uh, teaching you my philosophy or my thoughts. This is the Word of God and what God had to say. Genesis chapter 13. We find what God had to say about... Sodom. Genesis chapter 13, and look at verse 12. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Lot was Abram's nephew. You're going to see that name again in just a minute. Lot was blessed when he was close to his uncle because Abram was close to God. But when Lot got a little older and was eventually blessed, Lot began to look towards Sodom. Boy, it looked like such a fun city. There were so many opportunities. It was such a beautiful place. And so when it says he pitched his tent towards Sodom, that's where his mind and his heart was. He was still in the plain, but his heart was moving towards Sodom. Look what the Bible says in verse 13. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. See, what Lot couldn't see beyond the lights and the, the, the bustle of, of busy bodies and, and commerce, what Lot couldn't see was this was a wicked place. Exceedingly wicked. And God knew everything that happened. Look at Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, we find God gets to the place where He's got to destroy Sodom. By this time, Lot had moved to Sodom, and as a favor to Abraham, God came to Abraham and told him, I've got to destroy Sodom. Basically saying, I know Lot's there, I know you care about him, but I've got to destroy the city. It's, it's irredeemable. They will never turn back to me. And they're corrupting themselves and the, the, the folks around them. I have to deal with them. 
Look what it says in verse 20, Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men, these are two angels, the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, and Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So this is amazing. God says, I'm omniscient, I know what the state of affairs is, but just because I'm so just and righteous and I always do the right thing, I'm going to send two angels just to go down there and visually look upon the city to make sure that it's exactly what, what I know it to be. And that just shows God's uh, sense of justice. We won't look at all this portion of Scripture between verses 23 through 33, but basically Abraham begins to plead for the city. He begins to say, well, well, what if there's righteous people in the city? You don't want to destroy the righteous with the wicked, do you? And God said, no, of course not. And so Abraham begins to barter with God. If, if you find 50 righteous, would you spare the city? And this is a city of many thousands of people. And Abraham said, if you find 50 people righteous, would you save it? And God said, okay, I'll save it for 50. And then Abraham says, well, what if you find 45? You won't destroy it just because they're lacking five, will you? And God says, no, I won't destroy it for five. Uh, for the lack of five. So if there's 45, I will not destroy it. And then in verse 29, Abraham's like, well, what if there's 40 there? And God says, okay, if there's 40. Uh, and verse 30, he says, well, well, what if there's 30 there? And God says, okay, I won't destroy it for 30. And basically, God and, and Abraham are talking, and God gets Abraham down to 10 people and says, okay, God, if there's 10 righteous people in this wickedest of cities, would you spare the city and God says, I will spare it for ten righteous people. Now this shows that God, God does not want to destroy the city. God has to destroy the city. See, God's not some big mean God up in heaven waiting to pound you for doing wrong. God wants to bless you. God wants to save you. God wants to forgive your sin. But if you choose to reject Him, God must punish sin. He must. He must unless you trust Jesus. Now, I think Lot was thinking, okay, Lot's there and his wife, and they had children, and some of them were married. If just Lot's family had kept their eyes on the Lord, that would have been ten righteous people, and God would have spared the city. When the angels get there, they find such a desperate case. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. So now the gate of a city was like the, the leadership of the city. So Lot had not only moved to Sodom, now he was part of the leadership of this wicked city. He was very wealthy when he went there. Uh, and so he sees them when they come in. He immediately notices uh, who they are, uh, and he bows down to them in, in sign of respect. Look at verse 2. And he said, Behold, now my lords turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night. And wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. They said, No, we're not going to live in your house. We're going to just stay on the street. We've got some investigation to do, uh, and we're not going to stay in your house. Verse 3, he pressed upon them greatly. So basically, they agreed to go to his house with his begging. Look at verse 4. But before they lay down... The men of, uh, of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, 
all the people from every quarter, and they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came unto thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. Now the word know there is in the biblical sense, in a sexual sense. And here we begin to see the depravity of Sodom. And I, I hate that I have to even bring these things up, but I have to teach you the Bible. And this is instructive for us to know just how wicked this city was. We see the, the list of the sins of Sodom. First, they were in idolatry. Obviously, they did not serve Jehovah. Later, it says pride. Clearly, they were uh, a proud people. They seemed to practice hedonism, which meant that they, proud, they prized pleasure above all. They believed that the greatest, greatest height of being was to just enjoy the pleasures the world had to offer. Next, we see the sin of sodomy or homosexuality. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about this today. And listen... I, I love you I, in, in a real spiritual sense. I care about you, but I have to teach you the Bible. There's all kinds of thinking today that the Bible doesn't say anything about, about sodomy or homosexuality. There's even all kinds of churches around here that will say the Bible doesn't care about that. God doesn't care about that. I have to teach you the truth. And I believe God brought you here for a reason. And the Bible is abundantly clear. That sodomy or homosexuality is not the plan of God. I had a lady that she knew our church believed this, and I was out visiting, and, and she was being a little bit hostile to me, and, and she said, well, what does your church believe about, about homosexuality? I looked at her very lovingly, and I said, I appreciate you asking the question. I said, God loves us enough to tell us the truth. And God tells us, that that is not his plan for us. It will never lead to happiness. It will only lead to hurt and suffering. And there's a better way. And she looked at me and her face kind of softened and she said, thank you for your answer. And clearly she was involved in this lifestyle. You've got to understand that just because we tell the truth doesn't mean we're homophobic or, you know, they, they make everybody a phobe. You know, it's a, you're a phobe this, you're an ism that. No, we love people enough to care that if you're getting ready to jump off a cliff, it's my duty to say, hey, that's a cliff. There's consequences for jumping off a cliff. And what kind of person would we be just to let people go on in something knowing that they're going to hurt themselves, even if all their friends are cheering them, yeah, do it, it's going to be great. No, somebody has to say, hold on a second. And so... Sodomy the, is actually named after the town of Sodom. Homosexuality was called sodomy for thousands of years. The term homosexuality was adopted to give this ancient sin an air of scientific neutrality and to separate it from God's judgment. If you call it sodomy, it's connected to the city of Sodom, which God judged very harshly. But if you give it a name, it's like the Bible says drunkenness in the world today says alcoholism. God can give you deliverance from that, but the first thing you have to do is understand it's not just a disease, it's a spiritual battle. And in every area of life, the, the world tries to take sins and kind of give them a scientifically neutral definition, and, and really there's no hope, you're always probably going to be this, maybe we can give you some coping mechanisms. No, God can deliver you and give you absolute victory and peace and joy and love. The Bible says very clearly that homosexuality is a sin, and it's not a new sin. 
Some people see this as an evolution of humanity, and it's not. It's very old, and it's been talked about uh, for thousands of years, and every civilization that has ever embraced sodomy has not survived. That, dear friend, is a historical fact. And I hope you're not a history phobe. That's a joke. But look at, how, look at how bad this gets. So we see that they, have, they were idolatrous, they had the sin of homosexuality, but notice they didn't just have this sin, they were absolutely given to it. And in uh, verses 4 through 6, they demanded that Lot send these people out. We don't need consent, we don't care what they say, it's new meat, give them to us. And look at verse 4, uh, before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, can pass the house round about, both old and young, and all the people of every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. Verse 6, And Lot went out at the door after them and shut the door. So he sneaks outside and shuts the door behind him. He's trying to hold back this mob. And they are demanding, this lusty mob, they are demanding these angels to come out so they can... Assault them. But now we notice even a further digression, the perversion of a father's morals. Look at verse 7. And he said, Lot said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known men. They were virgins. Let me, I pray you, bring them out to you and do you unto them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for they came under the shadow of my roof. Can you imagine how... how, how perverse this is. So there's this lusty mob and the man comes out and says, listen, you can't have these two men. And in the, that part of the world, you were held in high esteem or low esteem depending on how you treated visitors. And in the mind of Lot, it was more important to him to treat his visitors properly than to protect his own daughters. And he said, you can't have these men, but I will bring my daughters out to you. They've never known a man and you can do with them whatever you want to do. And yes, that's what he meant. An absolute perversion of a father's duty to protect his own children. A father's instinct is to protect his daughters, but Lot's time in Sodom changed his wiring to prioritize the treatment of visitors over the protection of his children, and we see today that when we get involved in these, these godless philosophies, it actually changes people's minds. They don't prioritize the things that God meant them to prioritize, even to the protection of their own children. And then look, number five, we see a determination of the crowd to sin. Look at Genesis chapter 19 and verse 9. And they, the crowd, said, stand back, get out of our way. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn, and he will be a judge. You're going to judge us now? Now will we deal with thee worse than with them? And they pressed sore upon him, even Lot, and they came near to break the door. Folks, just because you join up with people and you might look like you're on the same side, if they don't have morals, if they don't have a, God, a godly perspective, they will turn on you and chew you up too. And that's what happened to Lot. We're going to do you the same thing, but even worse. Buckle up, buddy. Get out of our way. And they came to beat the door down, this mob. 
God had to supernaturally stop the mob. Look at verse 10. But the men, the angels, put forth their hands. So they opened the door, put forth their hands, stopping the crowd, pulled Lot in uh, the house and shut the door. And then verse 11, And they, the angels, smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great. So here's this crowd. God had to supernaturally stop this crowd from breaking in and assaulting these all of these men. And God gave them blindness. So imagine right now if you're doing something wrong and you're like, I'm, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do it anyway. And all of a sudden you're blind. You might be like, oh, hold on a minute. Maybe I need to rethink what I'm doing here as you can't see. But the Bible says they were so determined in this sin, they were so given over to lust that they wearied themselves to find the doorknob because they said even blindness and God's judgment is not going to stop us from doing what we want to do. And you see the perversion of this town. You see the corruption of the children's morals. Eventually we learn that Lot escaped with... Uh, first we see the corruption of young minds. Uh, look at verse 12. And the man said unto Lot, Hast thou any here besides son-in-law, thy sons, thy daughters, and whatsoever thou house in this city? Bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place. Imagine, is there any greater evidence of a town needing destruction that the people were willing to assault the very angels that came to check on the condition? And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verse 14, And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, the married, which married his daughters, and said, Up from this, out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And so we see that the corruption of young minds, young minds that are in a, a corrupt environment teaching these things, they will change. They will change their minds. Children are very impressionable. They don't know what's right and wrong. Uh, and sometimes wicked people target young minds to change them. And, and it's, it's becoming a kind of epidemic where young people can go off to college and, and stay there and sometimes come back very different than they went, even looking down upon the very parents that birthed them and took care of them and completely changing their ideals and this is what happened to Lot's daughters and son-in-laws. They, they laughed at him. They mocked at him. They eventually died because they didn't listen to their father and to God. And then lastly, in this terrible tale, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And I'm sorry to even take you on this journey. It just gets worse and worse. But lastly, we see the perversion of the children's morals. In verses 30 through 38, we won't take time to look at it. Lot escaped with two unmarried daughters. They had been so corrupted by the perverse culture in Sodom, they believed the best way to help their father. I'm sorry for bringing this up, but it's history. They believed the best way to help their father was to get him so drunk that he wouldn't notice and commit incest with them so that they could give him sons. In every culture on the planet that I've ever heard about, that's a no-no. These young minds were so corrupted, they thought this was not only acceptable, it's the right 
thing to do. That's exactly what they did. And the two children that were born became constant enemies of Israel. Have you ever heard of the Moabites or the Ammonites? Those were the two sons that these young ladies had. They say, well, what happened to Sodom? What did God do? Look at Genesis chapter 24. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities which grew upon the ground. And that which grew upon the ground, God said, the only thing I can do is erase this city from the face of the earth. I don't think it gave God pleasure to do that. He would have been willing to spare him for ten righteous. Matter of fact, we see the grace of God that the two angels grabbed Lot, his wife, and their two daughters and drug them out of the city, sparing their lives. I want to tell you, dear friend, God will drag you as far as he can, but each one of us have to make a determination. Are you going to surrender to God? Are you going to believe in Jesus Christ? Or do you want to run back into the city to be destroyed? Lot's wife turned back because that's where her heart still was. And the Bible says she was destroyed, turned into a pillar of salt. Her, her turning back because that's where her heart was. God said, if that's where your heart is, then that's where I'll leave you. And as much as God has done everything to save us, God cannot and will not make you go to heaven. He cannot and will not make you follow Him and be blessed. Ultimately, He gives each one of us the choice. Consider this excerpt from biblical archaeology that details the ruins found that maybe they believe this is the city of Sodom. They haven't been able to find it for many, many generations. But here's a quote. Archaeologists found widespread evidence of an intense conflagration that left the Middle Bronze, Bronze Age city in ruins that puts the city about the timetable that the Bible puts it. They found scorched foundations and floors buried under nearly three feet of dark gray ash, as well as, as dozens of pottery shards covered with a frothy, melted, in quotes, surface. The glassy appearance indicates that they were briefly exposed to temperatures well in excess of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the approximate heat of volcanic magma. Such evidence suggests the city and its environs were catastrophically destroyed in a sudden, extreme conflagration. Dear friend, Sodom's a real place. And God really did melt it. And God's warning to the children of Israel was, you're more corrupt than Samaria and Sodom. And God's warning was, don't make me keep judging you. But here's the beautiful truth as we end. God did restore Israel. 
there is hope. God restored Israel through a miraculous event, sent them back. You can read the book of Ezra that details the the king sending them back, Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls. Ezra details them going back and the rebuilding of the temple. And it's just a miracle. Let me just tell you this. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, if you turn to Jesus, He can rescue you. Whatever darkness that you have visited, whatever loneliness you feel in your heart, whatever sins in your past, whatever pressure you feel today, whatever... despair if you turn to Jesus and say Jesus please you'll find he was there all the whole time waiting with open arms to save you forgive you set your feet upon a rock and establish your goings the rest of our verses detail the road to Sodom how did Sodom get so bad That's going to have to be another sermon for another time. But I think it's applicable for our nation and for us personally to make sure that we don't stay on that road. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to go to your word today. Thank you for a people that are willing to hear the truth from your word. I pray that it would be taken and accepted in the spirit in which it's given, a spirit of love. And even if we disagree, that we can talk about it and sense what, what you would have. Lord, I pray for our, our community, so many hurting people. Oh, I just pray that they would see you there with love and outstretched arms and they would turn to you. I pray for all the college students down the road just starting a new semester, learning about the world and their place in it. I pray that they would turn to you. Our world today gives a lot of options, a lot of philosophies, a lot of intelligent-sounding reasons to do this or that. But one thing they can't deny is you're working on the heart. And I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you would speak to each person's heart, that you would move past any defenses, any misconceptions, preconceptions, that you would help us to stand in the the truth, the light of the truth, and bathe in it, and not run from the light, but to run towards it. And if we need to change, then we change. If we need to get saved, we get saved. If we need to go a different direction, we go a different direction. Help us to run toward the light. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. The message is over. At the end of each one of our messages, we take just a few minutes and have time of reflection and response. God intends that we respond to his word. What did the Lord speak to you about? Anything in today's message that kind of touched home? Well, now's the time to respond to God's word.
If you're not sure you're saved, you're not sure you're going to heaven, we'd love to take a Bible and show you what, how you can know for sure.